0: The main thing I think is that with it to make an instrument sound good is that first of all, everything has to be right. You can't screw up one thing. The varnish has to be the right kind. The modelling has to be good. The setup has to be good. The wood has to be good. You know, and if you fail on one end, something you know, you can get around it, but something won't be quite right. You know, it's a tough I really admire violin makers. It's a very hard Hard but rewarding craft.
1: Welcome to Rosin the Bow and part two of my conversation with John Sherba, violinist and member of the Kronos Quartet. In this episode, John talks about the very strange practice on the part of Romanian gypsy fiddlers of cracking their violins. His experiences visiting two musical instrument museums, how changes in humidity, even rather severe changes, might really help the tone of a violin, and what it's like to create music with folk singers from different parts of the world. So sit back, pour yourself a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, and enjoy this visit with violinist John Sherba. So when we had talked earlier, and uh, since we're talking about instruments, you mentioned this very unusual situation with this group that you worked with. I think you said maybe they were from Romania and uh, the idea of cracking the violins. You want to talk about that?
0: Sure. The quartet did several years ago an an album. It's actually called Caravan. And on that, it's, we did a, a work that was augmented by the Tarafta Dukes. The Taraftei Dukes are a Romanian Gypsy band, and they're phenomenal. It's one of the most amazing things. Uh-huh. It's the Gypsy violin playing that you know that you dive die to hear and, and wish you could only. You wish you could do it, you know. And the bass they play playing, little
1: hammer dulcimer.
0: Yeah the cimbalom yeah is yes, that it's called okay yeah it it was it was unbelievable you know just charisma speed accuracy cleanliness and so i remember during the recording and also during the concerts we would we would chat about instruments a little bit and i'd always see both violinists you know they'd be kind of in the corner a little corner almost looking as though they were hiding <laughs> and they were t- they had an they would have an instrument and the instrument would be open and they were s- basically they were kind of s- hitting it smashing it cracking it and <laughs> you know and I thought what what's going on so i mean they had a little hammer or something i mean y- yeah I mean, they they made a crack in it you know and so You know we started talking and you know they kind of laughed and they said what what evidently what what the gypsy players do is that they find especially when they're touring like this group did they would find super inexpensive instruments and they would open them up and crack them and then they would glue the crack up put the top or the back back on and they they said that after doing this the violin would be so loud, not only loud loud in a good way, you know it would carry and it would it would really project. And you know what I remember when we played with them, we couldn't believe how loud they were big you know big sound, <laughs> really big sound and, you know and it, you know it was kind of amazing, and you know so then they kind of laughed and they said. But, you know, when you do this, it only stays loud for two weeks and then it dies. (laughs) So that's why they always would be getting, you know, cheap instruments, cracking them. They'd play them for two (laughs) weeks. You know, they would get the volume. And, you know, they needed a certain kind of volume that would, because a lot of their concerts, maybe people are dancing. People are talking. People are shouting. People are clapping. So they need to carry in a certain kind of a, a powerful way. And, you know, that's what these two particular violinists did. It was amazing. And what was interesting is that I I remember reading, it could have been in one of the the violin magazines, the great makers, the great violin maker, Zygmuntowicz. I think, I hope I'm correct, but I thought he was experimenting with things like, with something along with that kind of a concept. And, yeah probably in a more refined way, I would think. And also with an instrument that, you know, is, is a fantastic instrument.
1: Well, you know, now it's, there's so much uh, thinking about the very concept of loudness. Yes. Uh, especially on the engineering side of things. And they say because people are using techniques to increase the sense of loudness, which is not really exactly volume, It's It's loudness, and I don't even quite understand Mm -hmm. what that's all about, but they say our media environment that we're in is extremely loud. Things are pushed and compressed or however, whatever techniques are used. Um, But that's, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing.
0: I also feel when, you know, when you talk about sheer volume, really what carries also for a violin, you know, when you're on stage, is kind of a cleanliness, that it's very clean, clean sound. But also, that it's a beautiful sound. You know, a beautiful sound, the ear naturally wants to hear it. Ah. And even if it is a little bit in decibels softer, than something else, the ear will open up to it. One of my favorite violinists, Nathan Milstein, you know, right. he did get a huge right. sound. But, you know, some people say, oh, you know, he didn't get as big of a sound as Heifetz or zeno and He didn't. Or even Henrik Schering. But he had such a beautiful sound. And it would just, you know, in a hall, it was just, it wouldn't melt you. You know, you're, you'd you sit up. So you would sit up and then you, there you gain, your, you gain your decibels just by sitting up.
1: <laughs> I love this idea. I really do very close friend of mine was a folk singer uh, named Utah Phillips. And he, um, I did an interview with him around the art of storytelling, which is what I do. And I'm very interested in that. And he said that uh, he often really had to talk to sound people. And he'd say, if I get quiet on stage, because he's, I've seen him hold audiences, five, 6,000 people at a festival or more, you know, just telling a story. And then, you know, he'd sing a song afterwards, but he would just tell these stories. And, um, he said, if I get quiet, don't turn me up. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, don't, don't start compensating. I know exactly what I'm doing. And he knew how to bring in this attention, uh, and not lose anyone. Uh, he, he was a master at it. And in a way that's almost what you, I think exactly what you were saying. If, if you make it interesting enough, the ear leans in towards it Mm -hmm. and, uh. You know, it's, I, I love that. Mm-hmm. I, I talked to Joshua Bell about that phenomena of mm-hmm. how an instrument can have such projection, and he, he really felt that it was the overtones certain instruments have, so that you would, even when you're playing very quiet, th- there's something about the overtones, and he related it to uh, very famous opera singers that have this ability, um, because of those overtones, to reach way back in a hall, and... Um, and um, I, I wasn't sure exactly how that works but that's what he how he tried to explain that
0: actually I totally he's absolutely agree it's kind of the depth and then the overtone just it goes all the way to the back of the it floats out of the instrument and the overtone floats it floats out oh, right. or <laughs> you know or sometimes you want it to be kind of like a a razor sound that just kind of, you know, sizzles out too. So, you know, a good instrument with those kind of overtones can kind of do both.
1: Yeah. I know the career you've had with Kronos Quartet, there's so many people you've worked with. And uh, and again, I, I'm going to sort of try to keep the focus around, again, the instruments, mm-hmm. just because there's so much we could talk about. Uh, you you, had, you talked to me about your experience playing uh, Pincus Zuckerman's violin, but you were saying, I, I believe the story was that you had gone uh, to um, Cremona, the museum that we also visited, mm-hmm. and they gave you these very um, famous violins, but only a very little time to play them. And, 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 and the dilemma of that or the,
0: uh, mm-hmm. the challenge of that situation, you want to tell that story it would be great. Sure. Let's see if I can. I remember one time the... That- the quartet we played a concert in Cremona and the day before it was very nice the museum where they housed the instruments. They had some guanaries there and a Mahdi, I believe they had a Strad at that time. But um they asked us, David, David and I, if we'd like to go there and play the instruments. And of course, you know, it was it was a thrill, you know, and, and an honor too. So I remember we both walked in, there's an armed guard there. You know, he takes out the instruments that were in a glass case with the white gloves on. You know, and then, you know, he hands it to you. I remember he handed it to me and then later he handed it to David. And so here, it was odd because you know you only have like about, at the most, five minutes with it in front of the armed guard. what are you going to do with an instrument in five minutes? You know, it's kind of Uh almost ludicrous. You know, so, you know, I did kind of the obligated thing. You know, I played it. I played a couple of the instruments. Five minutes went by. And, you know, of course, you know, you feel obligated to return the instrument and say, Oh, my God, that was just unbelievable. (laughs) <laughs> oh, this is something. You you know you feel obligated. You, it's like you almost you have to. There's something about the situation that you have to do that, and so he got that out of me. Oh yes, this is just fantastic. <laughs> and then and you know and I you know it was good. You know they were fine instruments. There's no question about it. You know I'm not convinced they were. Some of them. One of them was fantastic, but some of them were okay. You know, if I wouldn't trade my violin for, for it. I'd rather play my violin. But there was one instrument in there, and I played that one. And that was my by far the my favorite one. And I thought, I hope I have this right, but I thought it was in the ex-Zuckerman guaneri. Uh-huh. And it's interesting because when I played that violin, first of all, it looked familiar to me because I remember he had a record cover with that violin, if I'm correct about this, on the the Haydn violin concerto, on er, his early recording of it. I believe that violin was on the cover. And, you know, Zuckerman gets a very distinct sound. You know, it's kind of when he plays... This is Pinkus Zuckerman. You know it, you know, by hearing three notes. It's him, no matter what violin he's playing.
1: Isn't that amazing?
0: Yeah. And so I played this violin. And, you know, I wasn't thinking about, all oh, this rings, this sounds great, this is loud, this is deep, this is dark, this is bright. What I heard in that violin, I heard Pinkus Zuckerman. You know, I heard his sound. And it was just, it was in there. You know, he put it, he put it in there. And I don't know how long that instrument was sitting in the museum. And, but his sound was still in it. It was amazing.
1: That's one of the great mysteries, I think, is um, how we, uh, how, how that can, that transference can occur, the idea that, you know, these are, are particles and waves, you know, when you get down to the basics of what all matter is, uh, these violins are—that's are, what they are. They're, they're atoms. And somehow mm-hmm. or another, uh, we can imprint upon those atoms, or there is this idea that someone who uh, has a, a tremendous gift with music can, can put that in an instrument, that the instrument then would carry that on. And and, and I, we must recognize that in some ways because we often will name these violins for people who have owned them, often musicians like the Lipinski Strad, and mm-hmm. as if, you know, there's a series of people that have had these objects and have put their soul energy into them. I, I'm very intrigued with the, the poetics of that, but I think more than just, you know, say, oh, it's nice or a romantic notion, I think there's more to it than that. I can't explain what it is, but I think that's part of the fascination we have with violins. Yeah.
0: I You know, I really think, you know, the way a player, you know, I guess Joshua Bell was talking about the overtones and really when an instrument already has overtones, but when it's played um, really well in tune, when those double stops are ringing, triple stops are ringing, you know, notes with other players are ringing as a as a chord within a group. It really, I think, it shakes the instrument. It shakes it and it opens. That everybody has their theory. You know, you ask any violin maker, violinist, they'll have their own theory. But one of my theories is, is that it op- somehow it's opening up the fiber of the wood when it's played really well in tune. Like you know, I've seen. You know, some instruments not famous instruments not old instruments but they were played by fantastic players and so they were you know they were played in tune and they were played you know with a depth of sound and those those instruments sounded really terrific and I have the odd feeling if they weren't played that way you know you'd pick it up and you'd say oh so this is okay nothing special.
1: Yeah, I, I learned for a year in Scotland from a man named Donald Riddle, who was a wonderful Scottish traditional player, and also made violins. Mm. And uh, he he often would buy violins, not terribly expensive violins. But, you know, he'd find violins because he had many students, and then they would play in the and Real Society that he was also music director of. And uh, so you'd have 40 or 50 musicians playing from age 10 to 90. It was just wonderful. Mm. And you'd have a piano and maybe two stand-up basses, and then everybody else was playing the violin. And they were playing traditional uh, Scottish fiddle music. Uh, but in a kind of formalized way for the folk world. Uh, and he would be mm-hmm. up front and he'd play along with everyone, all very nattily dressed, and in his 70s shock of white hair. And uh, he'd, and the group would be all playing uh, a march or a bay and then suddenly he would stop playing and take his bow and he'd be conducting <laughs> uh-huh. and then he'd go back to playing with everyone mm-hmm. it was it was uh, I met him when I was in my 20s and he was he changed my life uh, profoundly mm-hmm. but he would get these violins and and exactly that he would play them uh and get them just to sound so much better and then he would turn them over to students Mm-hmm. You know, he'd say, well, you can buy this. You know, I bought it for this, but you can buy it for this for me. And, But he would play it in for them, and it did sound better. It was just a better-sounding instrument after he'd played it for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I don't, It kept him several months, and then would pass him on.
0: It, he opened them up, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, made a different kind of cracking. <laughs> it's interesting because, you <laughs> yeah, know, but, as
0: I was saying earlier, it's like you talk to any... <laughs> Any violinist, any maker, everybody's going to put their two cents worth in and their theory. And, you know, there's many theories. The main thing, I think, is that to make an instrument sound good is that, first of all, everything has to be right. You can't screw up one thing. The varnish has to be the right kind. The modeling has to be good. The setup has to be good. The wood has to be good. You know, and if you fail on one end, Something, you know, you can get around it, but something won't be quite right. It's a tough, I really admire violin makers. It's a very hard, hard but rewarding craft. And
1: While we're talking about instruments, John, um, tell me about the violin that you have that has the Wisconsin wood in it. Even though it's not your main violin, but it is one you have. Uh, Tell Mm -hmm. me the story of that violin.
0: So... Some years ago, I was very fortunate, there was a violin maker in the Bay Area and he called me up and he was making a violin, a very special one, and he knew I was from Wisconsin, I think. And this violin, the wood that he was using, was very interesting. And that the wood was part of an old growth forest from the trees in northern Wisconsin, around the Lake Superior area from around 1820. And of course, when the settlers first came there, what's the first thing everybody always does is they they cut the trees down. Right. So they cut these beautiful old-growth forest trees down, didn't know where to put them, and so they dumped them into Lake Superior. And so they've been sitting in Lake Superior all these years and you know, about 10, 15 years ago, somebody found a way to get these old logs up from the bottom down there. And so he got a hold of some of this wood, and the back of this violin is made out of that wood. And, you know, there's the theory, you know, the, one of the wood theories about Stratt is that he floated his wood down the River Poe. And it had been submerged in water, and the, also that it was old growth forest, and it was cold. And so this wood, you know, it, it was really submerged in water, and but it was all dried out when he, you know, he made it. And the violin sounds; it's a terrific violin. I'm very happy to to have it in the house. It's really fantastic.
1: Short aside: there was a. Um... A place in Maryland, this is before the Civil War, that uh, was noted for the whiskey they made. And they would Mm. distill this uh, whiskey, and they'd put it in these wooden barrels. And they had an arrangement down in Baltimore for ships that were going to California when the gold rush had started just about then. So these ships were making the journey from Baltimore around uh, the tip of South America and up to San Francisco, And then they would come back. And for ballast, part of the ballast was they would take these barrels of this whiskey. And they would just make this journey and come all the way back. And then he would sell the whiskey. And the idea of of the uh, whiskey being sloshing around in the barrels by all that sea energy and all that uh, vibration made the whiskey much better. You know, this was his… I believe it. Well, you know, and we were talking about the wood uh, when we were there in the Val de Fiem. There were really rapids uh, because there was a real drop coming out of that high country of the water. So they had taken some of the logs that they had cut uh, for some anniversary of Stradivari and the wood that was used in Cremona, and um, they tied these logs in the current, in, in the rapids, This idea of, again, experimenting does that vibration of the water, not just the water itself, but the vibration, Mm. do something. that gives this wood this extra special quality. So, I don't know. I've just connected it to the whiskey. But I always love that whiskey
0: story. That's Yeah. You know, I believe all of it. It's interesting because I'll I'll throw out my theory. (laughs) You're way good. (laughs) And it's just a theory I'm going to make. I'm going to make violin maker's cringe probably. But the, here's my theory and I, I there's actually a violin maker. He lives on a one of the very northern tiny islands off of Scotland and he wrote a big article about humidity cycling and violin making. Huh. And basically his theory is and you know he worked on it with instruments. And according to him, the instrument sounded better. I didn't hear any. But his theory is as if you, you know, you always hear that, oh, you don't want to subject your instrument to changes in humidity, you know, because it can result in cracks and that kind of stuff. But his theory was the opposite, is that if, if an instrument is subjected to different Weather, weather, and humidities—dry weather to humid weather to dry to humid to hot to cold—that it does something to the cell, the cell structure of the wood. And you know, it's interesting because there's a theory. Again, I'm making violin makers cringe, but there's a theory that I, I wish somebody would experiment with more because I kind of believe it and i look at my instrument the instrument was made in 1884 and i got it in 1980 so you know it wasn't it wasn't 100 years old yet and now it's over you know it's it's old it's over 100 years old and you know i've noticed you know it changing and again being in the quartet our quartet all of the concerts we've done it's been subjected to airplanes it's been subjected to playing in in Hawaii it's been subjected to playing in the Yukon you know it's it, it's been subjected to incredibly dry conditions in halls all over the world because a hall has air conditioning so a hall is basically dry the humidity is dry in a hall because of the air conditioning right. and usually they put the air conditioning on when it's humid outside. So you're, you know, this instrument that's just being constantly in different kind of humidities. And I actually think that that has helped my violin. That's, there's my theory. And, you know, so, but I wish some, you know, some makers would, would explore that because I think there's something, there's something to it rather than being frightened of humidity changes. Uh-huh. And, you know, sometimes... The instruments that are in glass cases—they haven't been subjected to that, you know, for at least a couple of years. If they've been there a couple of years, ah. you take them out, they don't sound good. You know, it takes a while to get them going.
1: That's interesting. You know, it seems like there's there's an argument uh, or a, um, what I would say a um, a binary argument that I've come across regularly in this series. And one is that um, the old violins have to be played. Uh, It's the playing of them that makes them uh, come alive and uh, be great instruments. And then the other camp, which, uh, like David Fulton says, well, playing a violin improves it about as much as walking on a floor improves the floor. (laughs) He he doesn't buy any of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... The, you know, you've added a third way of looking at this. It may not be the plane; oh. it may be this exposure to humidity yeah. changes. You know, which is really a different thing altogether. It's because, altogether of course, different. the collector, the collector is terrified that you know it's it's a rough world out there for a violin. So, a violin being on tour, exactly, uh, yeah. you know, La Pacelle or something. I mean, David Fulton wants to keep that instrument as in pristine condition so that generations. You know, mm-hmm. future generations can have the the real instrument, and it hasn't been you know knocked and banged and repaired and new wood added. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's he's reluctant to to have it uh, to give it to a touring musician. Mm-hmm. He'll let it be played occasionally, but it's a different thing. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, it's so interesting. When I went, you talked about that museum in Cremona. Um, it kind of it kind of uh, creeped my wife out in, in a strange way. I never expected this. Uh, we went into the hall where they have these certain violins on display because they have many in their vaults, right. but they have these tiny little pin lights, and it's it's a very muted lighting in mm-hmm. the room, and these things are lit in this these hermetically enclosed ca- uh, glass cases of being held up as the things of greatest value, like you're looking at the Hope Diamond, mm-hmm. uh, the the presentation of the violins, and uh, I don't know, there was something about that just seemed so different than what violins really are or how we experience them in the real world.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. Have you ever been to the Musical Instrument Museum in um, outside of Phoenix? I think it's in Scottsdale. I have not. Oh, here's a place when the virus ends. <laughs> Go there immediately. With, I think it's one of the greatest museums in the world, actually. The, uh-huh. It's like three floors, and you explore instruments from all over the world, different guitars and and, uh, Native American instruments. You know, it's uh, instruments from Africa, instruments from all parts of the world, really, and really beautifully displayed and everything. But here's a funny story. So they have, of course, they have their violins. And, you know, they had, you know, the guitars right next to it. And they're, they're, those guitars were really impressive. You know, beautiful colors. You know, some of the Native American instruments, too. Beautiful designs and shapes. And and then you looked at the violins that they had at the museum. And, you know, to me, when you looked at them, they looked kind of plain. You know, they looked kind of ugly, actually. Uh-huh. You know, and it was, I was kind of... <laughs> kind of struck by that <laughs> you know, as a violinist it's an odd thing to say but you know it, it, they looked very plain when you when i compared them right there to all these other incredible instruments you know with some with artwork on them with beadwork on them with feathers yeah. and, and here's yeah, this yeah, violin yeah. you know with a very very pale <laughs> yellow yellow varnish it didn't look like anything special
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to uh, tell me about this group that you worked with um, from Mali. And uh, I i just, uh, Trio de Kali, is Trio that how you pronounce
0: Kali,
1: yeah. I mean, just brilliant. Yeah. It, it is, to me, one of the most magical pieces of music I've ever heard. It's this combination of your quartet and their music. But uh, when you play... With uh, and you rehearse, and you, you try to create a piece of music with the human voice, the singing voice. Anything you want to say about that or how that project came to pass?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. Well, I mean, what I remember, well, one of the best things that, and most memorable things that happened when we were working with Trio Takali is Awa, who's the fantastic singer, one of the great voices, great voices in the world, uh-huh. she would do um, greetings for, for people. You know, she, I remember somebody came into the, into the rehearsal and Awa did a Malian greeting for them. And so she sang, you know, she sang this beautiful song that lasted maybe about three, four minutes. And that was her way of saying, hello, here I am, here you are. You know what's happening and it was <laughs> so beautiful it was that was just and she did that for somebody's birthday you know it was really really special and just so heartfelt it was like oh this is what you do you know and we want to make the person feel comfortable and I'm gonna sing for you it was really wonderful and you know that's how all of the recording sessions were they were comfortable and you just you know you were playing for the other musicians you know you, the balafon that he was playing it's it's a um, kind of a it has how can i describe it it's um, you you hit it it's a percussive hit instrument but it rings you know we were talking about the instrument the violin ring the balafon, which is made out of wood, it rings also. And so, we, you know, we were trying to match in certain sections the sound of the balafon. And your first reaction, oh, it's percussive. It's a mallet. It's being hit. And so you think, oh, I should throw the bow. I should play it a short note. But when you listen carefully, it's not. It actually rings. And so, you know, matching timbres was a, something that we talked a whole lot about in those sessions. And we actually found that doing longer length notes when we were playing with the balafone, it matched. And so uh-huh. you kind of had to find like the, it's like finding the key to a map. You know, that's We found the key to the sound in those rehearsals. That's what we were searching for. How is the composing being done? The composing on that, what we did is that we had uh, Jacob Garcek? He he wrote he basically wrote our parts okay. d- down, and then so we actually we were reading it. But then there are parts that we we went off the page. That piece would go off the page, which is which was lots of fun.
1: Uh-huh. Listen now to a sample of the musical magic of the Kronos Quartet and the West African musical group. Trio da Cali. <laughs> Again, playing with the human voice. You've done that for other projects Lots. also?
0: Yeah, we've been doing Lots of projects. And
1: some have been spoken word and some have been yeah. singing.
0: In fact, our latest album that will be coming out hopefully in October on Smithsonian, it's a, basically an homage to Pete Seeger. Oh, And so we have some singers who are joining us who, you know, who knew Pete Seeger and inspired by Pete Seeger and their voices. Each voice is so different from song to song. And so, you know, that was fun trying to match and and have, you know, work with the different tampers and everything.
1: There's some folk singer, I wish I knew her name. I read it. It was in the New York Times. Somebody had heard this and and wrote it up in the New York Times. So I could find her name. But she was uh, sending a piece of music she had recorded to Pete Seeger. And she was in a a post office someplace. And she had run in from the car real quick. And she um, had her credit card uh, to pay for the postage. And when she got to the front of the line, there were people behind her, the, the post, you know, the fellow working there, said, well, I need your license. If you're going to run your a credit card, I need your license. And she was like, well, it's, you know, it's only for $3. And no, no, I need your license. So it's in the car, you know, and she'd been waiting in line. And, and he uh, guys, I'm sorry. You know, I can't take the credit card without a license. And the woman behind her said, do you see who that package is, is mailed to, is addressed to? And he goes, yeah. He says, that's Pete Seeger. He's the most honest man in America. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And the guy said, all right. And, he, you know, he took the credit card. Isn't that a great story?
0: <laughs> yeah. Wow. I really love that. That's a great one.
1: Well, oh. I'm looking forward to hearing that. Uh, that's That would be wonderful. Yeah. You've worked with Laurie Anderson, and you've worked with uh, uh, Terry Riley, as you right. mentioned, and um, and Philip Glass. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. so, uh, and then we talked about John Cage. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh, anything you want to say about working? Because I know we had a kind of a discussion around, now we're getting more philosophic, it. away from the instrument per se, but this idea of uh, how he thought of what music is and, and spontaneity and, well, let's say a lack of intentionality, mm-hmm. if that's the right way to put it.
0: I how, how would a you... really, really nice story, a couple stories with John Cage. He actually wrote his piece called Thirty pieces for us, and um, each part was written. It was influenced by the the I Ching. He would roll the I Ching, throw the I Ching, and then he would be influenced by that and write the notes down. And what I found very interesting working with him is that he was. You know, you think of John Cage's chance chance music. The you know things are free. But it was, you know, he had this incredible India ink pen that he would write, he would meticulously write the notes. And the notes for this particular piece, it had over each note was like about six different directions or three different directions, Mm. very meticulously written. And I remember we each went to his house and we each played our individual part for him. And the parameter of it, was kind of free because you had maybe 20 seconds to fit in everything in this section. But what you had to fit in was so precisely marked and he heard everything. And he was really watching carefully. And he I also remember he has a wonderful laugh. And another experience we had with him, we were in Europe playing a concert and we he was there and we decided to do an encore together. And so we rehearsed it. And it was one of it was a piece for quartet and piano. And it was with stopwatches. And, you know, I remember we rehearsed right. a very hard and we did it over and over and over to the cue to start the watches together. You know that was a very important element of it. And it was very serious, very serious. So we get to the, to the stage. We do the cue, everybody pressed the button, the clock started, played the piece through. Then, as we're walking off stage, I hear John Cage's wonderful laugh. And he's just smiling like a kid, you know, laughing. And I said, oh, and I thought, oh, no, did he not like it?" And I looked at him and I said, oh, you know, what's so funny? And he laughed and he said, you know, I forgot how to put turn on the, the stopwatch, so I didn't use it. And, you know, and so here you have, the, <laughs> right. you know, he's so, so free, but yet so meticulous and, you know, so serious, but yet so having such a good time when, when things don't go well, you know, he still is enjoying things. And I think that's an important thing for people, for people to remember is things don't always go well, but. You know, you can still
1: enjoy things. Well, you know, this might be a great segue into one question I have to ask: mm-hmm. Is um, what's going on now? You're rehearsing, and yet you have all the social distancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does a quartet deal with this? And maybe, you know, what, what, you know, that idea? Do you do you try to embrace what it is for what it is, and and accept that, or is it just really become a problem?
0: Well, you know, I think what's going on now, you have to embrace what it is because there's nothing you can do about it. You know, it's, it's you know, everybody, everyone in the quartet, you know, we're obviously, huh? you know, feel that this is a dangerous, dangerous thing, the virus. And, you know, we should distance, we should wear masks, we should listen to the experts. <laughs> and And that's what we're doing. You know, we want to do the right thing. And, and so you have to flow with it. Um, as far as what we're doing, of course, we it's very interesting because we've been working with um, a computer expert from Stanford. And you know how when you use Zoom or things like that, there's always a little glitch, especially playing instruments. There's always a glitch and there's a time glitch. So playing together... Latency... That's it, latency. It's virtually impossible to play together. So what we've done is this person from Stanford, he's trying to minimize the latency. And, you know, he's getting really close. And so we Uh just, as of yesterday, we actually did a piece together, the four of us. And, you know, it was pretty together. We were impressed with that. But one of the other things that we've been doing is, you know, we're working on a project. It's almost done. It's called 50 for the Future. And what we're doing is we we commission, it's going to be 25 men and 25 women composers. And they write uh, maybe about six-minute to 14-minute piece. And we put it up on our on our site and people can download it immediately they can hear conversations with the composer about how to play it they we do interviews talking about the technique of it and the music is available immediately you don't you know you don't have to rent it that kind of a thing and you can download it and we're really excited Mm -hmm. about this project it's almost done. i think we're we're into the 40s now but one thing that we came up with is we asked this wonderful composer to, um, we just just started doing this, to write a piece with the issues of Zoom, of, of a quartet working right. through Zoom, develop a piece so it can be done. And she, we just did it, and she wrote this wonderful piece and we recorded it on Zoom, and it didn't matter that there was a latency. That's written into the piece, and so we've got a new fifty for the future piece, kind of all all set to go now. Yeah.
1: That's great. I mean, I, I'm I'm so fascinated by how people, how they use their imaginations. We have to imagine the world every day. You know, you get up, mm-hmm. you wake up in the morning, you've had dreams all night. It's a different kind of imagining. And then you've got to imagine the story. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you just stay in bed, right. <laughs> or, or you know, you mope around. I mean, mm-hmm. we 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 so much need a story to tell us our lives have meaning and there's a purpose to it. And uh, and when we're so, uh, when music is such an important part of our lives and these instruments, I mean, we when we sit in a room and play music together. We're moving air molecules. It's a very real thing that's happening in the room mm-hmm. all together. And to separate people, and then the thing that's moving the molecules is the spe- is a speaker, is a little cone of paper vibrating, you know, from a, a, a magnet. And so there's all these— st- these, these transformations that are occurring, especially now that we're in a digital age, so you're going from analog to the digital transfer, and then it's going over whatever network to the other person and then being uh, converted back into analog so it'll move, move air mo- molecules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's a magic. It is you, a magic. You know.
0: yeah.
1: Can you imagine how anyone before, you know, 200 years ago could even think that this would be a possibility? So maybe... Embracing it with a, a sense of adventure and curiosity mm-hmm. might be just the thing we need to do.
0: It's interesting because I always think I was always very fascinated by Native American cultures and especially in the, in the North America. And you know when you think about the way that they lived back then, almost all of them, you know, you would, you would kind of refer to them all, most of them, most of the people, in the villages as renaissance people like renaissance man, men and that they you know they had they played their own music you know they were part of a group usually they all joined in together to play music they made their own artwork they hunted they made their own weapons you know they were they did so many things you know they actually they had their fingers in, in everything, and and that's wonderful
1: actually. Yeah. yeah, we forget that. I saw somebody one time give a talk. It has and never left me. He um it was he stood up there and he showed a uh, a small stone axe head, mm-hmm. and so it was obviously had been shaped, and um, he showed that and he said one person made this from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Right, they chipped away the. Maybe it was made of flint. I can't remember what the the kind of mineral it was. And then he held up a computer mouse, which was basically the same shape. And he said, on a planet with billions of people, there's not one person who could make this.
0: (laughs) That's true. That's very good. And and he
1: said, it's all because of trade. Mm -hmm. Trade has enabled Mm -hmm. all this to happen. And his whole thing was about that that's a good thing. Let's understand how profound trade has been. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the violin, of course, has always been part of all the trading that Mm -hmm. goes on and all the things that go into making the violin, the wood and the permabuco and Mm -hmm. all of it, you know, all the different places in the world Mm -hmm. that have a piece in in this instrument. And and, uh, we're trading music using all these new networks and trying to figure out what it's going to be like. But and then we're all hoping for that time when people can physically come back together again. Right. Yeah. What a what a uh, interesting time that will be when it finally happens. Yeah. yeah. And people can do so comfortably and and not you know with that anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Well, I think we could talk forever and Oh, this uh, has
0: been I've been enjoying myself. This is great.
1: Oh, good. I well, my I have too very much. The last thing I talk about is we talked about sort of that thing when you're playing, and that moment happens. You know, you, t- you talked about you know a trigger or something that opens up this other door or mm-hmm. this other dimension, in which that we experience in a very real way. We had talked on the phone. I was saying earlier that um, you know I think this is really what musicians have to bring to the world right now is not just the beauty of the music and the pleasure that that music uh, creates in people, uh, but the fact that they, they experience mm-hmm. this these moments where they sort of connect to this larger, I don't know, intelligence or mind or some other mm-hmm. reality. Because I think right now people are feeling pretty desperate. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're looking down the road and things aren't looking all that great on, on different you know, global warming or pandemics or the political situation. But to remember that there's something so much larger around us. Mm -hmm. Um, You could call it all kinds of things. I would tend to call it love. I don't know what other Mm -hmm. word to use for it that sort of grabs the hold of it. But I think musicians, the ones that I, uh, I have certainly been drawn to, are people who are just pursuing these moments when suddenly, in the moment of performance, the door opens. I don't know. Anything you want to say about that, John? I'd well, I, love to hear what you have to say. You know, I
0: do know when I've gone to performances that really made it for me, it's like you know, you realize that the the musician or the performer has put you know, they've they've put themselves in another realm, but also they've they've put me into another realm too. And so and when that happens both ways Things, things are floating, things are going the right way. One of the most incredible experiences I had performing, we played a piece with a very famous oud player called Hamza al-Din. And he wrote this piece for us, it's called Escalay, which means water wheel. And he joined us on several performances. And he was playing the oud and he was standing right behind me, right between Hank and I, When we were performing the piece. And he's kind of moving the oud. And it, and it's very rhythmic, very mesmerizing. And I have a rhythm with him that goes on throughout the whole piece. And I remember looking at him, and I swear that that oud was floating, that it was actually floating. You know, that he wasn't... That at certain points he wasn't yeah. in contact with it, it floated up. And it, it's just just amazing. And it actually helps me to play that piece, piece because for about the last five minutes of the piece, I play eighth notes on an open G string bum, 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 for the last five minutes. And normally people would get tired doing this, but I always think of Hamza and about how his mood was floating and what I always try and do when I do that passage, the last five minutes, is rather than sinking lower, I'm thinking that my whole body is going up, up, up into the into the the the, the, the clouds actually, <laughs> and everything is going higher and higher. And hopefully, yeah. I'll lose my violin. And it's, that's the way to play that passage. Anybody who's ever played that piece, think about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's great. Thank you, John, very much. I think we'll we'll wrap this up. Good. We could talk for days, I got a feeling.
0: Yeah, this was great and we'll have to meet in person sometime. That'll be great when that happens. <laughs>
1: Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project, hear additional podcasts, to maybe send us an email or make a donation, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And since the Kronos Quartet derives its name from the Greek word for time, let me leave you now with three quotes about time. The first is from the Irish poet and playwright Brendan Francis. When you are deeply absorbed in what you are doing, time gives itself to you like a warm and willing lover. And from the British writer Norman Douglas, we have, One can always trust to time, insert a wedge of time, and nearly everything straightens itself out. Lastly, a quote from the Austrian novelist Hugo von Hofmannsthal. Time is a very strange thing. So long as one takes it for granted, it is nothing at all. But then, all of a sudden, one is aware of nothing else. ¶¶